as we sing these songs, even as we sing these songs, these words that we have sung and are singing are fulfilled in our very voices. As you've brought us to yourself, many sons to glory through your very son whom you sent to die for our sins, to take our sins away in order to bring us to yourself. And so, Father, having tasted of this deliverance, our unwavering hope, Christ in power resurrected, as we will be when he comes. We pray we would see more of your plan unfold. We pray that we would see more of your plan to bring many sons to glory unfold in our own town, in our own communities as we think of our neighbors and as we look out to the nations and send our children and go ourselves. We pray that you would bring many to glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms will be in Psalm 96 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is a Bible provided for you just in front of you there. If you'll take that, crack it right to the middle, and you'll probably be in the book of Psalms and then turn to Psalm 96. shouldn't be too hard to find. Well, what a joyful night we had on Friday night. Grateful for all of you who were able uh, to join us. Um, and for those of you who helped to put that evening together, we had an evening of congregational singing with Keith and Kristen Getty. How sweet a time it was. But think of this. That's just a foretaste of heaven. And even those special nights, those one-offs like that, those aren't like the really special times of singing, whereas Sunday mornings are kind of special times. Those are themselves like little rehearsals for Sunday morning, where every week we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and look forward to his Return where we'll sing in the new creation with him and to him forever. So it's even better to be with you this morning than it was Friday, and Friday was great. Well, Abe preached last week from Psalm 95, and I'm so grateful for capable preachers to feed my soul and to feed all of us at my side, and Abe's sure one of them. And this morning we turn to Psalm 96. Last week, Psalm 95 called the congregation to sing. This week, Psalm 96 calls the world to sing. Let's read together. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations... The Lord reigns. Yes, the world, world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Keith and, Gret, Keith and Kristen Getty have put our attention on to a song that is old 
and that has motivated the church to go to the nations. We find that singing and going and singing and sending and singing and salvation all go together. First penned by China Inland Missions worker Frank Houghton at a time when persecution in China was at its height. Facing a task unfinished is the name of the hymn has been a rally cry for missions in the Pacific Rim for many years. In 1929, the Lord laid a vision on the heart of a China Inland Mission leaders to see 200 new workers plunge into the darkness in the context of persecution in which they were losing workers to share the light of Christ, knowing that it would well cost them their lives. As he reflected, that is Frank Houghton, on Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 14, to bear the torch of the gospel to all nations, his heart was broken for the people of China. And he wrote these words. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees. A need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know thee renew before thy throne. And the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and to make thee known. There's no greater name than Jesus' name. There's no greater cause than to take his name. Well, by 1932, only years later, the last of the 200 missionaries they'd prayed for and wrote this song in prayer for had set sail for China to spread the good news of the gospel. And since that time, the Church of China has grown from an estimated 100,000 who claim Christ as their Lord to millions. And the Lord continues to work in great ways because of the faithfulness of those that gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Singing and sending and salvation go together. And so they have gone together for as long as we've had the Bible, Scripture, and so they go together in this morning's psalm, which begins a new song for new people in verses 1 through 3. In verses 1 through 3, we're, we're commanded to sing. In verses 4 through 13, we're, we're compelled with reasons to sing, and we're equipped with reasons to give the nations to sing. He commands us to sing a new song. It's good to know what we're being asked to do if we're going to do it. If mom and dad children ask you to do something and you're confused as to what it is, don't say, yes, uh, ma'am, yes, sir, and go off to do it. Say, of course, ma'am, of course, sir, can you help me with what that means? In this case, what does it mean to sing a new song? We want to nail it. Well, in the first place, in the first place, it's a song. Four times in four lines do we see a reference to song or singing, which means, friends, you and I need to sing. And uh, I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir this morning. Accidental pun. No apologies. Which means you and I need to sing. We should not take for granted that God is recruiting a choir. He is calling to himself singers. He has decided to do that. It's not an innovation of ours. It's not an innovation that we have decided to include within our Sunday gatherings because it's something that, that people do. It's something that people do because God has made us to sing. It's because God has made us like himself. And then it's not like God is, um, is a sound engineer for his, his home. He made the globe like this special, really innovative speaker with Millions of little tweeters and subs on it. And he likes the sound because we're, we're merely for music's sake. No, he, he, wants, he wants song from the heart. What's beautiful to him is the heart 
of his people and the sound of their, of their voices singing. He, he made us to sing. He made us to feel. And he made us with a release mechanism for those feelings that are in part the sound of music out the voices of his people. And singing is a sign that we have opened our hearts to him. And, and friends, you have opened your hearts to him in your songs this morning. So with a song, that's what he commands us to. He commands us to sing a new one, a song that's new in our own song selection each week as Stephen and I, I partner together in that. We weigh a variety of healthy tensions, we could call them. Bob Coughlin has listed some of these. We've got our own of revelation and response, a healthy tension of, of being impressed upon with the revelation of God and yet expressing the revelation of God. Some songs are are mostly expressive with some impression, and even as we express in song, we're, we're teaching ourselves things about the Lord. Some songs are largely impression. We don't want all songs that are merely impression or all songs that are merely expression. We balance simplicity and focus and, and substance and depth, and we need a balance of that. Transcendence and eminence. We have a God who is great and greatly to be praised, and he is high above us, and he is in our midst, close, consistency and variety, already and not yet, already realities that we believe and all yet, not yet realities that we pray to believe more, pray to see come, exaltation and edification, the praise of God and the building up, the more horizontal aspect of our singing to one another, orderliness and authentic and and head and heart, oh, there are others. We could go on and on and on. And old and new is a part of that too. The command to sing a new song is not a command not to sing old songs. Indeed, the Bible is filled with, with old songs that we're to sing. We're commanded to sing psalms, for example, and those get older every single week when we gather. The command to sing a new song is a command we could say to seek and experience and respond to the fresh expression of God's rule and reign in our lives in salvation. A fresh realization of his work because he is at work. It's a command to seek the experience and to respond to the fresh expression of God's rule and reign in our salvation. And so we pray the Lord's Prayer, an oldie but a goodie in terms of prayer, but we're always praying newly because there's new prayers to pray. There's new thoughts to express. There's new needs to ask for and new reasons for which to praise God. And so we sing old songs because our faith is rooted in the eternal God and an old, old gospel laid down before the foundation of the world. But we sing new songs because we sing to whom? We sing to the living God. We sing to the resurrected Jesus Christ who is building his church even right now. And by the Spirit who is saving people through the new birth, even in this room perhaps this morning. A new song is a song. A new song is, is new. A new song is a victory song. It's a song of salvation. It has a certain content. Verse 2, sing to the Lord and bless his name and tell of his salvation. From day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. God's first big, marvelous, saving work in the Bible, to which the Bible looks back, although he had been making promises and issuing forth his plan 
His first great saving work that dominates the pages of Scripture is that of the Exodus. And when God delivered them, we're told in Exodus 15, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he's become my salvation. You hear it? This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God. I will exalt him. And so, no surprise, later David at the temple would stage, at the tabernacle would stage Levitical priests to sing night and day. Singing was on the lips of the, the people of God. And here, we see that we shouldn't just let anyone lead us there to sing. They're even given skillful musicians. There's only one that should direct the music for he understood it. <laughs> Not all of us should direct the music. There was one time early in pastoral ministry, I was a youth pastor, and um, the smaller church, and the guy who was normally leading was out and had another guy who was leading, and then that guy got sick or something, and so I had to lead, and I had uh, a gentleman come up to me after and said, no, you know, do they, do they, um, do they help you guys with that, you know, at, at, at Bible college? You know, maybe they should, maybe you should talk to them about, uh, you know, having a class on it. So it was really nice of him to kind of blame my education, but... Chenaniah, leader of the Levites in music, should direct the music, for he understood it. Stephen should direct the music at Heritage Bible Church, so because he, he understands it. And when we meet each week, we talk theology and music and timing and all these things. And I've got my accent on theology, and he sure got his accent on, on music, for he, he understands it. The exiles sang on their way back from Babylon... Isaiah 52, break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. That's a new exodus. So as the, the prophets look back to the original exodus, God's work, that was a paradigm of all of God's future works of, to save. It was a little play, a little dramatization of what God would do in the future and leading his people out so that when Isaiah spoke of the exodus in Isaiah 42, he said, sing to the Lord a new song and Praise him from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, and the coastlands and their inhabitants, and spoke of in Isaiah 40, making a highway for our God, who is our vanguard and our rear guard, and he goes with us. All that imagery of the Exodus, which led to song, leading to a new Exodus, which will lead to a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song and praise him from the end of the earth. So no surprise, Paul and Silas are in jail and Sitting on the floor, I imagine, singing hymns, it says. Praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Hmm. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Not exactly that will happen uh, every Sunday morning for us. Something, something even greater we pray, pray happens and that God shakes the foundation of your life and takes your chains off at the sound of God's people singing and saves you. The story of the Bible is a story of God's victory, his winning his people. And a new song is a, is a song sung in the fresh realization and experience of his victory breaking into the world. Whether it be after the exodus, at the return from Babylon, a kind of a new exodus, but really far short of what God was promising ultimately in the coming of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead, which brings us 
and an exodus out of our bondage and slavery to sin into his marvelous, marvelous light. His winning his people, his victory over the serpent and his offspring. It's a song to the Lord as well. Don't miss this. It's the most important hearer in our singing. We sing to one another. There's an edification part of our singing. We need to hear each other sing, sing these truths, and we need to show up every Sunday and be reminded that we're not alone in believing this. And when we're sad, we need to hear our brothers and sisters sing the truth about God's goodness and sovereignty, and we need to hear them sing sad songs themselves and hold out hope and prayer and song to God's word. But our most important hearer in singing is the Lord himself. So we sing to, to the Lord a new, a new song. John Piper reflects on this well. Sing to the Lord a new song. It's not wrong to sing about the Lord. The Psalms do it all the time. But when new songs are being written and composed and sung to the Lord, something is happening in the church. It's a sign of unusual life and vibrancy. People are not just living off the spiritual capital of previous generations, but they're they're dealing vitality and vibrantly with the living God. And their songs are being sung to him for he is real and personal and known and precious and present. Worship is more intense and more personal and more engaging. And that doesn't mean every song needs to, to church needs to write their own songs. But it means that we ought to be on the lookout for the very best new songs because we believe that that God's church is inhabited by the Spirit of God himself, and there is always more of God to explore in song. And so as we've been gifted down the generations with hymns and texts that we can't let go because they're so great, let us try on and test and discard some and keep other new songs to hand down to our children and to the next generation. And so at Heritage, you'll hear old and new songs, and sometimes... New songs will disappear on us, and it's because we just moved on. And you'll hear more new songs, and you'll always hear a steady diet of old songs that we pray you'll never let go. God is at work, and he has been. A new song is a song for everyone, an invitation song. It's the first psalm. This is Psalm 96, in which the entire background is the entire world which the entire background is the entire world. But is this just Israel's songbook? Yes, and Israel is not the beginning or end of God's plan, though. So yes and no. God's plan begins in the Garden of Eden with humanity, and God's plan ends with a new humanity and the new creation with singers made up from every nation. And Abraham and his children are a part of that are a part of that plan. In between is a promise to Abraham that through him and his line, God will bless the nations and the world, and that he will himself be the father of many nations, that he'll have land and be the inheritor of many, many lands. There's a global trajectory embedded within the story of God, even from Genesis itself. We see it coming, and it unfolds in the story of Scripture. The story of salvation and God's salvation plan is a plan that will envelope all of humanity, not every human person, but representatives from every people. And here begins a crescendo of praise that God will receive throughout the whole world. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. All the earth, sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day and declare among the nations his glory, his marvelous works among all peoples. And what we have here is a 
curious and unconventional evangelism strategy, an invitation for the world to sing in the form of song. And it makes sense, because in salvation, we're calling people to more than the truth, but to truth himself and a relationship. And when we write songs ourselves, if you listen to the radio at all, or you, you, you listen to music at all, there's lots of songs about lots of things, not a whole lot of songs about trucks, not a whole lot of songs about mowing the lawn, not a whole lot of songs about work, a whole lot of songs about relationships, and we never run out of them. We keep making them. Well, there's no greater relationship in which to invite a person than a relationship with God, and we'll be singing forever about him. And so there's always room for another new song. If in these first three verses we're commanded to sing, that in the rest of this, in the rest of this psalm we're compelled, we're compelled to sing, we're yanked into song. We can't not sing if we actually get these things. And so God is always commanding us, but also compelling us with reasons, with visions. He's compelling us, and so he's putting into our hands compulsions, reasons to offer to the nations and our neighbors to join us in song to God. First, sing because he's real. Verses four through six, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. He gives us something here to measure, something to compare, and something to behold. Something to measure his greatness, for great is the Lord and greatly to be, to be praised. Which is to say, God's praise in his people should be commensurate with his greatness. His praise should be commensurate with his greatness. Which means his greatness is that thing which stirs us to praise, not, not the environment, not the, not the lights, not, not the sounds from the stage, but the greatness of God itself is the, thing, is the thing praised when we come together. And how great is he? Oh, he's very great. He's immeasurably great, incalculably great. How great is his knowledge and his power and his wisdom and his infinity and might and immensity? It is very, very great. How can we praise him greatly? With all we've got, every Sunday, singing with volume, combining our voices, prioritizing this praise and being here when you're tired. Even when you're tired, perhaps it is that in coming to sing to God, that worship is even a little louder and more beautiful in his ears. For you have come to sing to him with the little cost of being tired, with our full attention on him, which means maybe reading the, the sermon text the night or the week before, if you know what's coming which means meditating in the morning, which means getting control of the, the atmosphere of the car on your way into church, if you can manage. I don't have such a hard time with that. I get here before my family. <laughs> I can't relate with you people. If you've got a family, it is a blessing to come to church together, but it can also be a curse to come to church together sometimes. So you manage that, but get control of it. Get control of it because God is great and greatly to be praised. And you're getting up in the morning to praise him greatly. So think about how that's going to unfold the night before, the week before. And prepare yourself so that he gets praise commensurate with his greatness. He's worth the preparation. 
If you're to go to a concert of a band you like or to a, a sporting event for a, a team you're excited about, you may talk about it, you may get the tickets, you may swipe the card, you may make arrangements, you may check the traffic, you may get the right people in the vehicle, you may make sure you get the right seat. I was talking to one couple this morning, dangerous impromptu illustration, don't use their names. Uh, talking to one couple this morning and the wife was there, where's the husband? Oh, uh, he dropped me off to get the right seat. I'm not sitting in the seat he wanted. <laughs> it was actually taken. But my first thought was, she's sitting in the seat she wants. Well, that's good. They'll sit together anyway. Um, in any case, I like that. I like that. Getting the right seat. Having a plan to be there so that you're all in. And maybe that means, maybe that means being in the same seat every Sunday. If that helps you, praise God greatly. Just don't be rude to people when they're in your seat. I had... Um, I was at a church with two services one time, and uh, I was hanging out after the first service, talking with my friends around the seat I was in, and this is probably, um, you're more vulnerable to this problem if you're uh, a little older, maybe. Social graces have let go a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit. We actually, we all lack social grace in different ways at different ages, um, but this older, older lady um, stood there and just stared at me. And uh, did not greet me. And um, so I greeted her. I was in her seat. <laughs> so I got out of the way. And it was a, we, we made friends. Um, I kept going to the first service. God is great and greatly to be praised. Do what it takes. Show up on Sunday ready to praise him with great praise. Something to measure, something to compare. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. You know, the Bible doesn't come to the question of other religions and other gods. And Well, Paul does in Acts 17. You worship the unknown God and appeals to them, so we'll qualify that. But, but at least in this case, it's pretty direct and kind of rude. Um, there, there is one God, and the other gods, well, they're, they're worthless. Even, even the language used here is the word, it's the word godlet. Godlets. They're godlets. The godlets of the nations. The nothings of the nations. What is an idol, Paul asked? Well, it's nothing. It's nothing. Isaiah 44, 9. All who fashion idols are nothing. Pour yourself into nothing, you become nothing. And the things they delight in don't profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Anything to which we ascribe the worth and power and wisdom that God alone deserves. That's an idol. Anything we find our identity in instead of the Lord. Anything we depend on for life instead of the Lord. That's an idol. Oh, and, and they're, they're subtle, aren't they? So in the ancient Near East, they would make these little wooden statue things. They thought they could manipulate the gods through them. And it was a really concrete picture of idolatry. Well, our idolatry is more subtle and, and invisible. Maybe it's the stock portfolio website maybe it's something else all kinds of idols do we we fashion the background of the psalm might be might be helpful to us here interesting this psalm appears in first chronicles 16 some psalms give you a little description and tell you where uh, what the context was most songs psalms do not give you any context and that's just fine um, they were written for public plug-and-play use. 
Uh, but when we get some context like this, that can help add some shape and texture to how we, how we put it to work ourselves. When it's been inscripturated for us like this, in 1 Chronicles 16, it appears, when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem and was dancing and, and happy. You may recall the Philistines, the enemies of God, had captured the Ark. The Ark had become a bane to them, a, a menace. Eventually, their god Dagon fell down, so they returned to the ark. Fine, get rid of it. But then it was a menace to Beth Shemeth. Israel had treated the ark like a, like a charm, like, like some manipulation mechanism. They'd started to think of it maybe a little bit like, like the little statue gods that the nations made, to trust in the, the thing itself instead of the Lord that it, that it was a shadow of, that it pointed to. Some Israelites took a look, and thousands died. After that, it was put in the household of Obed-Idim, a Gittite, a non-Jew, and God flourished his house. Eventually, God brings it back to Jerusalem. David does, and it settles at Zion, and David and his people were, were thrilled. Well, friends, we're the people who know that Dagon is not real. We're the people who know that anything we attribute ultimate value to is an idol and fake and profitless to us. We're the people who know that we are, as Martin Luther said, on our own, a people bent in on ourselves. So that when we think up what God is like, we imagine him to be like ourselves or a little more powerful. We bent in on ourselves, and that's reflected in the gods that we, we make. We're people who know, though, that the, the skills and the talent and the wealth and the intellect that we possess are all dependent upon the one who is the source of all these things, the maker of heaven and earth himself. That's our God. He's the maker of all things. We're dependent. He depends on nothing. We're created. He's the creator. He's the one who made the heavens and the earth. We are nothing. Our gods are nothing if we make them. He makes everything out of nothing. You and I are made from nothing. He makes from nothing. Something to measure is something to compare, now something to behold. His sheer beauty and splendor and strength. A beauty that we're even to fear. A fear not like a fireball from heaven. Not like somebody who has been harmed and twitches. <clears throat> a fear that comes from a sense of awe. Unlike the gods of this world, our God is a singing God. When we know him truly, he is, he is truly incredible. Zephaniah 3.17 speaks of the Father, God in your midst, mighty to save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt you with loud, over you with loud singing. Here is the Father, the God, when we know him rightly, singing over and rejoicing loudly over his people in song. We know that the Lord Jesus himself, the Son, sang in the upper room with his disciples before they left for the Mount of Olives. When in Ephesians 5, we're told to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when we're filled with the Spirit of God, we, we sing. Our triune God is a singing God. 
He's always been singing. And he invites us, he invites us into it. And so we seek to know him rightly. We sing because he's real. And the real God sings. Which leads us to our second reason to sing. Sing because he's radiant. Sing because he's radiant, verses 7 through 9. <clears throat> Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory <clears throat> do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. He is radiant. Friends, he is glorious. And ascribe glory to him. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean you and I ascribe glory to him as in we add glory to him. If we cannot add strength to a mountain, if you can't add power to a hurricane, if you can't add beauty to a sunset, then you can't add glory to God. But you can look at it and call it what it is. He's the source of all these things. Ascribe glory to him as in recognize his glory for what it is. His glory, my glory, I will give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. That's interesting. He gives his glory to no other but his, nor his praise to carved idols. Yet beautifully, Jesus says in John 17, the glory that you have given me, he says this in prayer to his father, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. And so God gives his glory to his people. He doesn't keep it from us. He's revealed it to in the person of his son. And then through faith in his son, we together know the glory of God. Which is why he's not only glorious, but attractive. Verse 8. We come to him. We come to him. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Come, come, come. He's magnetic. Come, bring your offerings, your lives, New Testament Christian. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Bring your whole self. Let us draw near to him. And that's not just for an hour on Sunday. We live in the very presence of God. We rest in him at all times. I had a conversation with a brother this week who was wrestling with some substantial and costly business decisions and difficulties. Half of his words were about those difficulties and decisions and frustrations. Half of his words were about the Lord and his provision and his kindness. And if I could add another half or go back and split it into thirds... I would say the rest of what he said was about the wrestling match to entrust himself to God and how grateful he is that God has provided for him to this point. Your lips, Hebrews 13, 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Come into his presence. Come before him and bring your offspring. Uh, bring your offspring. Uh, church on Sunday, don't leave them at home. Um, bring, your, bring your offering. And we offer up our, our whole lives. And of course, a part of that, a part of that is giving, giving in the context of church. It is that as well. It is making out a check, if that's what you want to do. It's, it's thoughtfully planning for how you will ongoingly give if you, if you do that online, however you, 
however you give, you give recognizing that the source of all you have is the Lord himself. You don't give because he needs something from you. He does not save people to recruit little, little givers like he's finding wallets for his work. You're his work. He's made you, and giving is a part of, part of sanctifying you. And it's a pleasure for us to bring our gifts, if you will, into his presence. It's a, present, it's a pleasure for us to, to give from what he's given us. So it's a part of that for sure. He's also holy. All families of the earth he calls on. Interesting. How is it that he calls on all families of the earth? Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. All families of the earth tremble before him. All, all the earth. We worship God on his terms, right? So in the Old Testament, that would mean coming to God on his terms through his old covenant system of sacrifices and, and the priesthood. And that didn't even really completely work. It actually hardly worked. It was itself designed to be a shadow of the substance to come, which was Jesus himself, who is our great high priest, who brings us into the presence of God continually, through whom we have bold access to God. We come on, we come on God's terms. We come through, through Jesus, but he calls on all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth to do this. Isn't this book to Israel? You might ask that again, and the answer is yes and no. Yes, and Israel is in God's plan for the nations. Consider where this, this psalm falls in the context of the book of Psalms. If we ever preach through the book of Psalms one day, I'll instruct more richly in this, but the book of Psalms comes to us in five collections, five separate books. It begins with two psalms that establish for us the kingship and the word. And in Psalm 3, we're plunged into the depths of rejection and trouble. And you have the story of David's life, if you will, in the Psalms, the story of God's plan and the way that this book of Psalms ends with the fifth catalog is even in, even in Psalm 150 is with resounding whole world praise to God. There's a movement, if you will, a, a movement from darkness to light, from, from quiet to loud, from no praise to praise. This, this chapter we're in right now is in book four. Book three Chapters, if you will, Psalms 73 through 79. We get some help here from one commentator. The nations are by and large described in book three as enemies of the people of God and are those who mock the name of Yahweh, Israel's God. It was the nation who just nations who destroyed the temple and derided God. The nations invaded Jerusalem and left the bodies of God's people to rot in the street. And the nations are characterized as plotting against Israel and against Yahweh. So in short, on the one hand, the nations surrounding Israel are presented as the source of opposition, oppression, injustice, and false religion. But even in the darkest darkness of book three, the lament over the fall of Jerusalem and the exile, we see another minority voice regarding the nations. Both Psalm 85 and 87, Psalms before ours, point to a future reality in which the nations will join with Israel in worshiping Yahweh. And here we have... The first psalm, again, in which the backdrop of the entire psalm and singing is not the immediate people of God, but the singing of the people of God and inv inviting all the nations to join them in singing. A hint as to what's to come. And so it's no surprise then in the book of Acts, the jailer who is hearing the singing 
like the other prisoners were hearing the singing, asks, how can I be saved after the earthquake and their, their chains come off? And himself is saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, he's told. And so the Philippian jailer becomes a Christian. And then, no doubt, you had, you had Paul and Silas singing with the, the Philippian Roman jailer singing. Those aren't supposed to go together, but that's what goes together. And that's what we hear on Sunday morning when you and I get, get together. A bunch of people singing one song that otherwise would never meet in a room to sing one song with one voice. A bunch of people to meet who can listen to whatever they want in the car. But when we come together, what's so incredibly miraculous is that regardless of what we may have listened to in the car, what we love more than anything is the sound of our brother and sister's voices singing the same song together. That's where worshiping God in the splendor of holiness begins with God's plan centered in Jesus Christ who lives for us, dies for us, and is raised for us and sends the Spirit so that we can be born again and sing to him. The splendor of holiness is not holy garments. Otherwise, my sport coat and your khakis or blouse or dress or suit wouldn't be acceptable, but something more akin to Levitical robes. Now, the splendor of holiness is the holiness of God reflected in the holiness of his people through the holiness of his son, Jesus, through whom we worship and through whom we can come on God's terms, perfectly acceptable, praise God. We worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Third reason to sing, sing because he reigns. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Tell them that. Yes, the world, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. And this is good news, but only if you're under his reign when he comes. So this is itself an invitation. His reign is stabilizing. It's not smothering. He's the source of the world's stability. And when you put yourself under his reign, you stop fighting the universe. Until we come to Christ, we fight the universe. We're against the grain of the universe in every respect, in all of our thoughts and deeds and motives and actions and relationships. No, his reign, though, when we come under it, is liberating, not, not limiting the world's morality is constantly shifting. It's a moving target, and it is limiting. And Christ is an unmovable rock in the middle of a constantly moving world, and his reign is a reason to sing. Every team has a victory song that we cheer for, and every nation that we stand under, whose flag we stand under, has an anthem. We have an old and new song to sing every Sunday. Old songs and new songs to capture in a thousand ways the magnitude of the victory that God has wrought for us. A new song is a victory song. And we say as we sing, the Lord reigns. And that's good news. Which leads to the fourth reason to sing. Sing because he comes to set all things right. Verses 11 through 13. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Here's the, here's the crescendo of praise. It's getting loud. Let the earth rejoice and the seas roar and all that fills it. And let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Be glad. Rejoice. Exalt, roar, 
sing for joy. This is honest stuff. This is genuine singing and praise. Jonathan Edwards helped us with this observation that the demons, the demons can engage in all kinds of religious-looking praise to God. He writes, the devil once seemed to be religious from fear of torment, Luke 8, 28. When he saw Jesus, he, he cried out and fell down before him with a loud voice and said, what have you to do with Je me, Jesus? Thou art the Son of God most high. I beseech thee, torment me not. Here is external worship, Edwards writes. The devil is religious. He prays and prays in a humble posture. He falls down before Christ. He lies prostrate. He prays earnestly. He cries out with a loud voice. He uses humble expressions. Beseech thee, torment me not. He uses respectful, humble, adorning expression. Jesus, thou, son of God. Nothing is wanting but love. So sing for joy. Be glad. Be in love with the Lord. And that's what we call ourselves to every Sunday. To love the Lord more than, more than everything else. And this crescendo of praise, of honest, genuine, happy praise is based on the promise. It's based on the promise that he comes twice. He comes twice. He comes. The story is of the Bible is the story of God coming for his people. He sent us out of Eden, but then he came for Noah, and he came to Abraham, and he came to Moses, and he came to David. And he promised the exiled generation that he would come. Isaiah 40 the voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the highway, in the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Lord is coming. He is coming. He came in the person of his son, and he has come in his spirit to us this morning. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And so in our singing on Sunday morning, when all of us get together in one room and sing the same songs together with parts or no parts, we're all singing the same songs. We're saying to ourselves, and we're saying to all who would listen who don't believe these things, he's coming. He really is coming. Creation longs for his return, we sang, when Christ will reign upon the earth. The bitter wars that rage are birth pangs of a coming age. When he renews the land and sky, all heaven and earth will sing in reply. With one resplendent theme, the glory of our God and King. This morning we have ascribed glory to the Lord. And we have done it as those who look forward to his coming again. And so even as we sing that he comes, we leave to offer to all the invitation that Jesus puts on our lips in the very last page of scripture when he says the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires to take the water of life without price may he come.
And so, friend, we put that on our lips. We put that on our lips when we leave. We put that on our lips as we sing because there is yet a task unfinished. There are yet more slots for singers in God's choir. For Friday night's congregational singing evening, we had maybe 60 or so slots, and we recruited singers who had to be available for rehearsals. You need only to come to Jesus to join this choir. You need only believe these things we sing to join this choir. So I say to you, come and join the choir. Come and join the people of God in song. We invite you to come. God has been singing. He sings over us. Jesus sang with his disciples, and the Spirit, when he enters you, causes you to sing. So come and sing. Friends, he's real. He's radiant. He reigns, and he will return to set all things right. And our singing is indeed the sound of the miracle of conversion, that God is himself doing a new work. We aren't merely reading words and replaying songs like a record. It would be more like a broken record if that's the case. No, we sing from hearts. Let us sing from hearts that experience afresh the new work of God as his reign breaks into the world in each of us in our church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have old songs to sing because we have an old gospel, and we thank you for a new song to sing every Sunday. We thank you that we can experience afresh, not new works that you never promised to do, but, but in some ways the same old work that you're always at work to perform through your spirit and your people, your work to save and your work to sanctify, your work to show us yourself. Would you show us yourself? And in showing us yourself, would you help us? Would you, through us, Show yourself to our neighbors and the nations. And even as we invite our friends into this choir, into your singing people, would you bring them to hear us sing? And would they believe? Would you bring them to believe that the things that we sing are true? That they may hear their own voice practicing for heaven with us and believing it all. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.